Hey, hey, how's everybody doing this glorious, wonderful, beautiful day? I'm so glad to be alive today. It's just a beautiful Monday. It's Monday, September 12th. This is ordinarily my patron stream, but as many of you know, occasionally uh, what I'll do is, as somebody described it, I give out a video for my free level patrons. So uh, you guys can kind of get a taste of what I do. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash militantomist, uh, you can get daily extra videos. It's like uh, five bucks a month for the videos. If you want to pay 10 bucks a month, you can get uh, the videos and my annotated Thomas articles. So if you're interested in more frequent content <clears throat> or just uh, just to help out, I know some people don't even really care about uh, any of the extra content. They just want to help out and uh, they've appreciated what I've done and they want, uh, they want me to uh, succeed more and more. So I appreciate that too. Uh, but I will, oh yeah, also, I forgot to mention, I always forget to mention this, uh, subscribe star. Some people don't like Patreon, so I did open up a subscribe star. It's just subscribestar.com slash militant dash Thomist. So it's all in the, it's all in the description below. Uh, it's pretty easy. But today we're going to be talking a little bit about justification and merit. So a bunch of extremely dirty words for, for Protestants, something that, that will, uh, will ruffle some feathers, you know. Those are bad words. We don't use them around here. But before we begin, let us pray. O Lord, hear our prayer and let our cry come unto thee. Let us pray. Ineffable creator, who out of the treasures of thy wisdom has appointed the hierarchies of angels and set them in admirable order high above the heavens and has disposed the diverse portions of the universe in such marvelous array. Thou who art called the true source of light and supereminent principle of wisdom, be pleased to cast a beam of thy radiance upon the darkness of my mind and dispel from me the double darkness of sin and ignorance in which I have been born. Thou who makest eloquent the tongues of little children, fashion my words and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Grant me penetration to understand, capacity to retain, method and facility in study, subtlety and in interpretation, and abundant grace of expression. Order the beginning, direct the progress, and perfect the achievement of my work. Thou art true God and man, who li and liveth and reigneth forever and ever. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Father Gary Lagrange, pray for us. St. Robert Bellarmine, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us begin right away. So I'm going to be taking you through a few texts within uh, the Tractatus de Gratia. Um, de Gratia, sorry. Um, probably, and then I'm going to terminate in the question about operating and cooperating grace. I won't be getting about the uh, the big discussional merit uh, down here, and then also the kind of mini uh, discussion of justification, which is in one thirteen. But I will just be getting uh, through the, the the distinction between the two, the principle of them, and uh, and fun questions like that, because it's very hard for most people to wrap their brains around uh, how in the world we could speak of merit. But it makes it it makes sense uh, once we once we start to uh, describe it in we we start to take it out of the polemical context of uh, throwing down uh, these uh, sort of definitions that people use, but they don't really understand the sense of the words they're using because you, you see it all the time in, in debates. Like a good example is the, uh, the filioque debate. People just throw out terms like, um, like uh, filioque, like uh, principle, like uh, monarchy. They'll, they'll throw around terms like that 
and uh, not really think about the sense of those terms. So I think if we get below the surface a little bit and think about the sense of some of the terms we're using, uh, a lot of this makes a lot more sense. So I'm going to start actually in uh, 109.1 because uh, this is where it starts, whether without grace man can know any truth. I think this is honestly um, the best explanation of distinguishing nature from grace. And then from here, I think we're going to move down to uh, 110 of the grace of God uh, as regards its essence. And then we're going to move down to um, <clears throat> 111.2 uh, when it comes to the distinction between operating and cooperating grace. So, and then uh, we're going to actually move over to St. John of the Cross's text, The Living Flame of Love, because I think with his devotional explanation of the working of the Holy Spirit in the soul, that we can kind of ground ourselves in the distinction between uh, justification and merit uh, in, in a way that makes sense and doesn't sound uh, really weird, like we kind of uh, form in a polemical context. So let's begin right away. So whether without grace, man can know any truth. So I answer that uh, to know truth is a use or act of intellectual light, since according to the apostle, all that is made manifest is light. So boom, right off the bat. So in order to know something, really what it is, it's an act of the intellect working by what's called natural or intellectual light, whereby we know something. So when it comes to the working of of the uh, of our intellects, uh, abstracted from the various gifts which are given, really uh, we have our sensitive faculties kind of going out and grabbing um, the certain attributes of a thing, and it, it impresses into our intellect. And we're able to see, okay, that cup over there, it's white. It's, well, actually, that thing over there, which I will reveal as a cup in a second, is white. It holds liquid. It um, is is that direction from me, all, all of these various attributes. And then what happens is it, it's impressed upon uh, what's called a passive uh, intellect. And then what happens after that is we have been given what's called intellectual light or the agent intellect. And it's a certain faculty, a certain what's called principium quo, so principle by which or certain form by which we're able to act. So we have our intellectual light and our intellectual light beams on that uh, on that sensible impression on our intellect. So I hope you guys are following. This will make sense eventually. And what happens is it renders it from matter to form. So I go from knowing these various different uh, sensible attributes to that cup sitting on my desk over there to actually knowing that that is a cup, that that has the form of cupness. So that's how uh, it, it works when it comes to our intellectual light. But um, we have a second way in which, uh, in which action happens. So we've been given a certain form, but also now every use implies movement, taking movement broadly, and then uh, skipping down. Uh, both corporeal and spiritual are traced back to the simple first mover, who is God. So not only do we have that form of intellectual light, which we just talked about, infused upon our intellects, but also when it comes to that movement, the, the various internal uh, imminent movements of our soul. It needs to have a first mover because it's a motion. And the first mover is the origin of all motion. So the first mover is God. So there's going to be an efficient causality and a formal causality that comes about from, uh, from God. 
So, and then now down here is really where uh, I want to, I want to render this distinction between nature and grace very clear to you from the distinction between efficient and formal causality, the principle, uh, that sort of movement, and then also the principle by which our uh, various faculties act. Now, every form bestowed on created things by God has power for a determined act, which it can bring about in proportion to its own proper endowments and beyond which it is powerless. So this is relatively obvious. Everything in creation is able to have a certain limit to which it acts, and it can't go beyond that. So, for example, our sense of hearing has a limit to where it is only able to uh, pick up um, vibrations in the air. Or our eyes are only able to pick up certain reflections of light off of things, beyond which it's powerless. Our ear can't pick up reflections of light off of things. Our eyes can't pick up um, the certain odor of things. That's, that's, that's not how it works. There's a certain uh, limit to each one of our faculties. And when, uh, when it comes to, uh, and actually I will uh, I'll continue, except by a super added form, as water can only heat when it is heated by fire. So if there's some sort of super added form, which is added onto our faculties, and Father Woodbury, I think he gives a, a wonderful definition, in, uh, explanation of this in his work on uh, sanctifying grace, which I'm actually in the middle of typesetting, which is why uh, it came up to me. So think about a tree. A tree has its very, uh, uh, some sort of vegetative powers. Let's say you wanted to make, uh, for some reason, a humanized tree. You want to do transition a tree into a human like yourself, uh, and therefore it has certain powers of, uh, th think, think about in like Lord of the Rings, the, uh, what, what are they called, Ents. Yeah, they're kind of like humanized trees. So they have these various faculties which are above their natures, which are uh, super added onto these natures. These are called super added forms. Just like when it comes to water, water is not naturally hot. Water needs to be heated by fire in order to give off heat, in order to act in that way above its nature. And thus, and then uh, applying this to human understanding, and then also uh, by consequence, the will, and thus the human understanding has a form, viz. intelligible light. So intelligible light is that principle by which we act, as I said above. So that's that uh, our, our, our limits to when it comes to our various faculties are stopped by the form that we have. So when it comes to humans, uh, with that intelligible light we have, it's the ability to know the forms of things by a certain uh, by certain sensible faculties or by the ability to reason from cause to effect. So we can know certain sensible, invisible things, and then we can also reason our way uh, to to other things. So for example, we can know that God exists. That is something within the uh, the the powers of our various faculties. We, we, can, we can reason from effect uh, to cause and know that God exists. Know that the first mover, the first cause exists. We can know that through our own uh, natural form, through natural knowledge. Now, if we're going to move above that, what we need is we need a higher power. So in order to intuitively know God, to know God with the certainty of faith, not only to know that God is, but to know what God is, 
we need a higher form of what's called the light of grace, which he's going to get into, which is of self uh sufficient for knowing certain intelligible things those we can come to through our senses the human intellect cannot know higher intelligible things unless it is perfected by a stronger light viz the light of faith or prophecy which is called the light of grace inasmuch as it is added to nature hence we must say that for the knowledge of any truth whatsoever man needs divine help that the intel intellect may be moved by god to act so that's that efficient causality so the natural efficient causality but he does not need a new light added to his natural light. And that natural light is that formal causality. So the natural formal causality and the natural efficient causality within our natural working. But in order to know the truth in all things, but only in some surpasses its natural knowledge. And yet at times God miraculously instructs by his grace and things that can be known by natural reason, even as he sometimes brings about miraculously what nature can do. So when it comes to the supernatural life of grace, Above the powers of our natural faculties, we have the light of grace, which is the form by which we act. And that light of grace is going to be, uh, as St. Thomas will say later, a participation in God's very knowledge of himself. That is the light of grace. It's something which is absolutely super power, uh, supernatural, above the exigencies of all created nature, of all possible nature. It's above, uh, faith is even above the abilities of the angels. So that that is how we're going to think about the relationship between nature and grace. And also that that uh, that what's called the principium quo, uh, as I said above, the principle by which we act or the form by which we act, however you want to say it. And then also that influx of efficient causality, which on the on the level of nature, we already won over. It's the certain first, uh, the effect of the first mover. But a level of grace, which he's going to uh, get into later, which um, I'll just tell you, is going to be what's called actual grace. So we have what's called actual grace, that motion uh, above the levels of nature. And then we're also going to have what's called sanctifying grace, which is going to be uh, that, that infusion of a higher nature into the soul which is really a participation in the divine life. So now let's uh, let's move on. So let's think a little bit about... Actually, uh, should I... I think actually I will. No. Yes, I will. So whether grace is a quality of the soul... As stated above, there is understood to be an effect of God's gratuitous will in whoever said to have God's grace. So when it comes to defining grace, it is a certain effect of God's gratuitous uh, will, a certain gift. Now, it was said above that man is aided by God's gratuitous will in one way. First, inasmuch as man's soul is moved by God to know or will or do something. So uh, that uh, actual grace or efficient causality. And in this, uh, which, yeah, is called actual grace. In this way, the gratuitous effect is in man is not a quality. So it's not an accident, but it is a movement of the soul. For motion is the act of the mover and the moved. So this, actual grace. We're not really discussing that. Second, man is helped by God's gratuitous will. Inasmuch as a habitual gift is infused by God into the soul. And for this reason, that it is not fitting that God should provide less for those he loves. That they may acquire supernatural goods blah, 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 so on and so forth. So all I wanted to do illustrate from that is that we have in that distinction, first, we have a movement of the soul, a certain movement, 
which is actual grace. And second, we have an abiding quality of the soul, a certain habitual gift. So this habitual gift is what Article 3 is going to cover in. So it's something which is abiding in the soul, something which raises it above its natural powers. And this can actually exist in two different ways. So uh, whether grace is the same as virtue, this is where he's going to get the distinction of um, of sanctifying grace between uh, entative and habitual. So some uh, held that grace and virtue were identified in essence, but only differed logically in the sense that we speak of grace in as much as it makes man pleasing to God or is given gratuitously and of virtue in as much as it empowers us to act rightly. And the master seems to have held this. So some people hold that virtue and virtue are going to be in reference to faith, hope, and charity and grace are identical in essence. But St. Thomas is going to disagree with that for obvious reason. But if anyone rightly considers the nature of virtue, this cannot be uh, B, since, as the philosopher says, virtue is disposition of what is perfect. And I call perfect what is disposed according to its nature. So virtue is going to uh, include the disposition of our certain faculties. So um, let's, let's think, for example, our intellect on the natural level. Our intellect is well disposed in that it has the virtue of prudence. It's well disposed in that it is a virtue of prudence. And um, this is going to be something which is according to its nature, which is this is this uh, statement according to its nature is really going to be how St. Thomas proves that virtue and grace are uh, distinguished. Now, from this, it is clear that the virtue of a thing has reference to some pre-existing nature from the fact that everything is disposed with reference to what befits its nature. So we have the supernatural life of the virtues, as we already talked about, faith, hope, and charity, faith, that certain participation of God's knowledge of himself, charity, that certain participation of God's love of himself. But it is manifest that the virtues acquired by human acts of which we spoke are dispositions whereby man is fittingly disposed with reference to the nature whereby he is a man. Whereas infused virtues dispose man in a higher and towards a higher end, consequently in relation to some higher nature. So we have those virtues of faith and charity, which are, are completely supernatural. There has to be some sort of grounds to it because it can't dispose a, uh, let's say, a natural nature. It can't dispose a nature uh, below the level of grace uh, on a completely natural, not a supernatural level, because you have to have a certain proportionality between the between the ordering of the nature and the nature itself. If you have a supernatural habit and a completely natural nature, it's going it, it's not going to work out. I.e. in relation to the participation of the divine nature. And it is in respect of receiving this nature that we said to be born of the sons of God. So when you have that uh, participation in the divine will, participation of the divine intellect in faith and charity, there must also in the nature of the soul be a participation in the divine nature, which is that uh, what's called an entative quantity, uh, entative quality. The entative quality is the raising of the nature of the soul. And then you have the uh, what are called the habitual qualities, which are the disposing of that nature uh, towards um, uh, God's knowledge uh, as a participation of God's knowledge of himself and God's uh, love of himself. So uh, that is that is how we're going to think 
about uh, about grace itself. Now, how does this fit into as as I've done that entire big old uh, prequel right there? How is this going to fit into justification, and how is this going to fit into merit? And what I uh, put forward is that in this distinction of sanctifying grace, which we've already talked about, that elevation of the nature of the soul, and that and that infusion of um, infusion of certain habits to so the entative and the habitual, we're going to distinguish justification from merit in this on the difference between operating and cooperating grace. So let's um, let's get down here. So as said above, grace may be taken in two ways. First, as a divine help, whereby God moves us to will and to act. Second, as a habitual uh, gift divinely bestowed on us. So the first way, uh, that sort of efficient causality that we were talking about earlier, that's going to be actual grace. So that's not something we're going to cover. That's that influx into, into our soul. And second, as a habitual gift divinely bestowed on us. And this is the sanctifying grace we talked about. And it's going to be entative and habitual. It's going to raise the nature of our soul. And it's also going to dispose the faculties of our soul to a higher form of life. Something above the exigencies of all nature into the very divine life. So uh, now getting to here, I think it, yeah, it gets, gets down to here. So now in both these ways, grace is divided into operating and cooperating. For the operation, and this is in reference to uh, to the relationship of grace to action. So for the operation of an effect is not attributed to the thing moved, but to the mover. Hence, in that effect in which our mind is moved and does not move, but in which God is the sole mover, the operation is attributed to God. And it is with reference to this that we speak of operating grace. So that wherein God completely in himself is going to work upon our soul. That is that is how we're defining operating grace. So the working of God on the soul. But in that effect in which our mind both moves and is moved, uh, the operation is not only attributed to God, but also to the soul. And it is with reference to this that we speak of cooperating grace. So in cooperating grace, God is, as before, uh, moving upon the soul, but he is also bringing about the effect of certain actions from the powers of our soul. So he doesn't only uh, change and infuse into the soul, moving us to something, but he also kind of moves the will into certain, leading the will to move in certain ways. So it's not only operating, but it's also operating into a certain act that is going to flow from the soul. And John of the Cross is really going to make this a lot easier for us to, to think about more concretely. So now moving down. But if grace is taken for the habitual gift, then again, there's a double effect of grace, even as of every other form. The first, which is being. So being. This is going to be that participation in the divine nature, in the nature of our soul, and also the participation in the divine powers within our powers. That is going to be being. And then second is operation. So operation is going to be, as we thought above in 109.1, 
where we have um, our our will, I mean, our intellect, which is working by that natural light, which is given by God. That is how we think of operation, a certain working of the faculties based on the form which is infused into it. So in living our higher life, we have the action of our will, which becomes a supernatural action because we are working by that very charity of God, which is infused into our souls. So first, uh, we have the infusion of being, that being or existence of a higher life and the essence of the higher life also infused into our soul. And then we have the operation which flows out from our powers, working by these new habitual gifts uh, and also the new nature which has been given into the soul. Thus, and then uh, this is going to be a good analogy. Thus, the work of heat is to make its subject hot and to give heat outwardly. So just as think again of our cup of water that we brought up earlier and the, the super added form, which is found there. So we have our cup of water sitting here right there and we have the outside source, which is just uh, let's say we got a blowtorch and we put the blowtorch next to the cup. And let's say it's a metal cup because I, I don't think it would work well with any other uh, type of cup. So we've got a blowtorch, which is blowtorching onto the metal cup. And it's giving it's it's giving a certain share in its own heat. And the water starts boiling and boiling and boiling. Now, at this point, the heat of the blowtorch gave a certain participation of itself into the water, whereas the water is now hot. So that is the uh, working of uh, that first uh, being of habitual grace. So the operating habitual grace. The operating habitual grace is God, the blowtorch, blowtorching us with himself that we be made hot. And then we have a second stage in that too. What happens if you uh, take your hand and then stick it in the water? If you take your hand and stick it in the water, is it just going to stay fine? No, of course not, dummy. When you stick your hand into the water, it makes your hand hot. Because when you make something hot, it gives off heat. Not only is there a being, there's a certain operation. So in a similar way, when we think of God's working into the soul, when he gives these certain uh, certain gifts into the soul, you have a certain operation working off of that. You don't only have the, the water being made hot, you have the water giving off heat. And thus habitual grace, inasmuch as it heals and justifies the soul, or makes it pleasing to God is called operating grace. So this right here is the Catholic view of justification. The Catholic view of justification is that is um, operating habitual grace. So you have us, the cup of water sitting here, and you have God, the blowtorch heating us up and the heating up itself, the giving of a new and higher life, the, uh, the, the being, of habitual grace is justification. We are made just. We are uh, be, we become partakers of the divine nature, and we also become partakers of the divine powers in our various uh, habitual orderings. This is justification. I don't want any of you going around here and saying it's the latter. None of you. I will. I will uh, deck you. If any of you are out there saying that the operations of the soul are justification, that is not justification. 
Justification is the making of the water hot, not the giving off of heat. Now, but inasmuch as it is the principle of meritorious works which spring from the free will, it is called cooperating grace. So inasmuch as in boiling that water, the heat is given off, that heat being given off is what we would call merit. Because the what merit is, it merit is living in that divine life which we have been given, which is still a cooperating grace. So still God giving the gift, still God giving the movement, uh, still, uh, but there is a certain internal command of our faculties. And that's why I said to spring from free will. So it's not completely separated from the actuality of God, but it involves us instrumentally. And that's how we're going to think about meritorious works. But meritorious works are not justification. Justification is the infusion of the of sanctifying grace, which is going to be both entitive in that our souls are raised up to a new life and habitual in that we're given a share in the divine faculties within our faculties. That is faith and charity, which is uh, a share in God's knowledge of himself and a share of God's love of himself. Now, I want to, in order to uh, get into this a little deeper, is to move over to St. John of the Cross's Living Flame of Love, because I think he perfectly is going to explain this for us. And then the stanza, and the way this works uh, is he makes a poem, and then he uh, comments on the poem. So, O living flame of love that tenderly, uh, tenderly wounds my soul, in its deepest center. Since now you are not oppressive, now consummate. If it be your will, tear through the veil of the sweet encounter. Sound his commentary. The soul now feels that it is all inflamed in the divine union. Its palate is all bathed in glory and love. That in the intimate parts of its substance, it is flooded with no less than rivers of glory, abounding in delights, and from its depths flows rivers of living water which the Son of God declared will rise up in such souls. It seems because it is so forcefully transformed in God, so sublimely possessed in him, and arrayed with such rich gifts and virtues, that it is singularly close to beatitude, so close that a thin veil separates it. And the soul sees that every time the delicate flame of love, and notice the flame of love is going to be the Holy Spirit, Burning within assails it, it does so as though glorifying it with gentle and powerful glory. Such is the glory this flame of love imparts, that every time it absorbs and attacks, it seems that it is about to give eternal life and tear the veil of mortal life. That very little is lacking, and that because of this lack, the soul does not receive eternal glory completely. With ardent desire, the soul tells the flame the Holy Spirit, to tear the veil of this mortal life. Now by that sweet encounter in which he truly communicates entirely what he's seemingly about to give each time he encounters it. That is complete and perfect glory. And thus it says, O living flame of love. And we're about to get into it. To lay stress on the sentiment and esteem, he gives, goes over why it says, Oh, this flame of love is the spirit of the bridegroom, who is the Holy Spirit. The soul feels him within itself, not only as a fire that has consumed and transformed it, but as a, a fire that burns and flares within it. Notice, and this is uh, going to be my thesis, 
is that when St. John of the Cross, and he's going to get into this a little bit more in detail, and it's going to be glorious, when he speaks of the Holy Spirit consuming and transforming the soul, the consumption and transformation of the soul by the flame of the Holy Spirit is justification. Whereas the burning and flaring of the Holy Spirit in the soul can be thought of as merit. As I mentioned, and that flame, every time it flares up, bathes the soul in glory and refreshes it with the quality of divine life. Such is the activity of the Holy Spirit in the souls transformed in love. The interior acts he produces shoot up flames, for they are acts of inflamed love, in which the will of the soul is united with that flame, made one with it, loves most sublimely. Thus, these acts of love are most precious. One of them is more meritorious and valuable than all the deeds uh, a person may have performed in the whole life without this transformation, however great they may have been. And then this is going to be right here, merit, the burning of the Holy Spirit within the soul. We are as a log sitting there being uh, engulfed in flames. The burning of the log is a certain certain share in the original flame. And the flaming up is a certain intimate union with the Holy Spirit, which we call merit. The same difference lying between a habit and an act. So this habit is going to be justification and the act is going to be merit. The same difference lying between habit and an act between the transformation in love and the flame of love. It is like the difference between the wood on fire and the flame leaping up from it. For the flame is the effect of the fire present there. So what we have is we have the Holy Spirit coming into our soul, lighting us on fire. And this lighting us on fire, which is a certain share in his own life, is justification. And then when you, what happens when you burn wood? When you burn wood, there are there, uh, flames up from it, certain flames of its own. And these flames of its own, which are share in the Holy Spirit, which are wrought and continued and sustained by the Holy Spirit, is what we speak of as merit. We can compare the soul in its ordinary condition in this state of transformation of love to the log of wood that is ever immersed in flame and the acts of the soul to the flames that blazes up from the fire of love. The more intense the fire of union, the more vehemently does this fire burst into flames. The acts of the will are united to this flame and ascend, carried away and absorbed in the flame of the Holy Spirit, just as the angel mounted to God in the flame of Manoah's sacrifice. Thus, in this state, the soul cannot make acts. No, notice, notice. It's going to be really important. It's going to be really, really important right here. Thus, in this state, the soul cannot make acts because the Holy Spirit makes them all and moves it towards them. This is how we are describing merit. It is the Holy Spirit making our acts and moving us towards them. Because, again, we have a very share in our faculties of God's knowledge of himself and God's love of himself a very share in the Holy Spirit and in the word of God, the very Trinitarian life and the entative quality infused into our nature of the soul we have, we have as we may think of the Father and the in, in our very faith and knowledge that we have in ascent unto the propositions of the faith, we have that very participation in the divine life of the Son. And then in the flaming fire of the hearth of the Holy Spirit within our souls, we have the Holy Spirit, the very Trinitarian life of habits and entative quantity qualities that we have in the soul and as a result of this all the acts of the soul are divine since both the movement to these acts and their execution stem from god 
It seems to such persons that every time this flame shoots up, making them love with delight and divine quality, it is giving them eternal life, since it raises them up of the activity of God in God. That is a Catholic view of justification right there. And that is a Catholic view of Mary. Don't let anybody else tell you it's otherwise. Okay, that's all I have for you. Thank you. And I uh, hope you consider uh, becoming a patron. Goodbye and God bless.